Hi, this is Albert. And this is Luke. Today is Monday, the 15th of March. Welcome to the Telescope Investing Podcast. Hey, Albert, remember two months ago, we did that episode on risky investments, and we talked about some of the investment products that we wouldn't want to touch. Things like penny stocks, trading on margin, shorting and options. I thought it'd be good if we came back together and picked up the topic of equities in a bit more detail in today's episode, because you know, not all equities are equal. Yeah, I agree, Luke. There are certain businesses that we don't tend to invest in for one reason or another. Actually, I should probably rephrase this. There are some businesses that we used to invest in, but no longer do. And maybe it would be nice to just go through why that is. And while there are some pretty diabolical businesses we're going to talk about in today's episode, they're not all necessarily bad investments, but these are definitely investments we don't want to make. Yeah, I'd like to stress that these are just personal preferences. And we're not saying that these investments should not be made by anybody. Some of them are actually good investments, but we have chosen not to invest in these businesses uh, for personal reasons. And maybe by sharing our rationale, it'll help listeners figure out their own rationale because I think we're going to come to an interesting conclusion around how investing in stocks that you're passionate about and truly believe in can really add to your bottom line returns. That sounds good Luke but before we get there we sent out a survey to our listeners via email recently and we got a lot of great responses and listener called Gedik he wrote he wants us to discuss in a little more detail about our own strategy regarding buying in thirds. I think you talked about this in a very early article on our website. Back in July we posted an article titled how to size a position. So let's maybe each talk through our own rationale for how we build a position slowly. And I think the main learning in here is not just diving in with both feet and buying a full position on day one when you may not know that much about a company. Yeah, so the way I do it is I usually buy into uh, positions 1% at a time. If I see a company that I like and it shows promise, I usually buy a 1% position to have skin in the game and then do more research into that company. And then if I like it, I'll add another percent. And for me, a full investment is around 3% so for the companies that I have the highest conviction in, I usually invest about 3% over the course of a year. I follow the same model, but maybe a little more aggressively. So I try to buy in chunks of 2%. I'll do the same thing where if I really know nothing about the company, but I'm interested, I'll get some skin in the game, maybe with a half a percent or a 1% investment. A bit like we did with Curiosity Stream last week, just to learn a bit more about the company as part of our new hyper growth portfolio. But once I feel like I understand the company, I'll throw in some more money and lift that up to 2%. And I'll consider that my first third. And for Curiosity Stream, because it's a high risk investment, we chose to start with 0.5%. And if that company starts to show that it's going to be a fast grower and an established business, we might increase that investment with another 0.5%. Yeah, I agree. Albeit, I don't think I'm going to have the bandwidth to be studying Curiosity Stream and the other hypergrowth investments that closely. Actually, I saw this tweet from Beth Kindig, a very popular person in the FinTwit sphere. She said she uses position size to manage risk. And this was the breakdown of their strategy. They invest up to 1% for early trends, but have no evidence in earnings. 2 to 3% if there is some evidence in earnings, and up to 5% when there's overwhelming evidence in earnings. And usually this only happens for the top trend of the year or top two trends. Yeah, that's good. I like the way Beth has grounded it in some objective numbers around earnings. That approach makes a lot of sense to me. We're not investing new money in building a position much beyond about 5 or 6%. Now, but you and I have both got stocks that are way bigger than that in our portfolio. I think currently Shopify is about 18 or 19% of my portfolio, but I've got there by the company growing. In fact, I've been chipping away at it and taking money out of it rather than adding new money. Uh, like 
Likewise, Luke, my two biggest holdings are in Shopify and Mercado Libre. And the, both of them are around 10 to 11% of my portfolio. I didn't invest 10% of my portfolio into these stocks, about 1% or 2%, and they grew into 10%. I guess we can summarize this by saying we invest early to get skin in the game, but as our conviction grows, we add more. But we don't overexpose ourselves, and we try to let the positions grow on their own. For example, last year, the only company that I invested the full 3% in was C in Singapore. And I've been watching C, even though I haven't been able to buy the damn thing. I'm waiting to buy in. I'm already at my full 6% conviction level. I've just haven't been able to purchase it because of tax restrictions in my investments today. So that's one where I'm going to dive straight to 6% as soon as I can. Well, that was a good summary, Albert. Well done for bringing it together. Should we get stuck into our main topic? Sure. So we're going to talk about the businesses or sectors that we don't invest in personally. And this isn't about businesses that we think aren't good businesses per se, but we would call anti-trends industries that will be disrupted by innovative competitors. This will probably be a separate episode in itself, but what we'll talk about today are just the businesses that we don't personally invest in. Yeah, to get it out of the way, because we've laid into the non-renewables industry and we've laid into Facebook and Palantir many times on previous episodes. So let's just set them aside. If listeners have been following along for a couple of months now, they'll be well aware that we don't like those businesses. Let's bring some new bad businesses to the table. Actually, Luke, I think we've been quite harsh on Palantir. I think we should give Palantir a chance and do a deep dive one day. That'll be interesting. I'm up for that. Maybe we should get one of our buddies on who is invested in Palantir to give us the bull case. Yes, it would be nice to get him on, but he's a bit shy. <laughs> I don't think he is. Let's, uh, let's get stuck into a bad business though. I've got one that makes me seethe, makes my blood boil. And thankfully, this industry has all but disappeared now. But these guys are the payday lenders. Honestly, in my mind, they deserve a special place in hell. Just to be clear, what do you mean by payday lenders, Luke? These are the exploitative companies that offer short-term loans, typically to those who can least afford them with interest rates of up to 5,000%. Well, it can be argued that they are providing a valuable service for people who can't get credit any other way. And if these payday lenders weren't around, they may have to resort to even worse options like loan shocks. This stuff is never a solution, Albert. A particularly nasty example of a payday lender was a company in the UK called Wonga who just had a really awful business model that was targeting the most vulnerable consumers. And luckily the FCA called onto it, regulated the sector, forced these companies to reduce their interest rates down to manageable numbers and to be more diligent with the kinds of customers that they could lend to. And as a result of that, all the customers that didn't fit those regs put in piles of compensation claims and that drove the company into the ground and put them out of business a couple of years ago. I did a little dance of joy on that day. So you mentioned that these loans have an interest rate of 5,000%. It's very hard to visualize how bad that is because most credit cards charge around 30%, which already sounds quite high. So 5,000% sounds ridiculous. And these companies would argue that typically none of their customers really end up paying 5,000% because these are short-term loans, but rubbish. Uh, it's exploitative. And in the round, the company are abusing their customers. Anyway, as I said, this sector has pretty much gone down, at least in the UK. But I have seen recently a rise of a new buy now, pay later type suppliers. I noticed a company called Klarna, who seems to be advertising everywhere. Yeah, I think I've seen a company called Affirm trending on Twitter recently. I think it's going public virus back and it has a very similar business model, which is buy now, pay later. Yeah. Now look, got to be fair, right? The business models of these companies is quite different to the payday lenders and they're not as exploitative, but this is probably where it crosses the line still for me anyway, as something I wouldn't invest in. Like I figure this is still creating irresponsible spending by consumers, getting people to live beyond their means and try and keep up with the Joneses. It's not healthy. If you really want 
want to achieve financial independence and get compound interest working for you rather than against you, then if you want a luxury or you, you want some sort of good, save up the money and buy it with your cash. Don't take it on credit. Yeah, I agree with you, Luke. And I use credit cards quite responsibly. I think I've only missed a credit card payment once in my life. And I was so incensed when I saw that interest charge on that statement. One of the first things I do now when I get a new credit card is set up an auto pay instruction so I never miss a payment. Yeah, exactly. Credit cards. And I guess services like Klarna can be a useful tool, but also credit cards mitigate your risk. They put the risk on the credit card company if there's a problem. But if you don't pay the card in full, then yeah, you could find yourself in a pretty horrible place where you're paying more in interest than you are on actual purchases. Well, it seems that some investors don't agree with you and a firm is getting quite a lot of attention. Not for me. I don't like the industry. I think it leads us to a bad place but it is a business model that works. I agree with you, Luke. But moving on, I saw a quote from Brian Ferrodi recently on Twitter that really resonated with me. And he said, you are not an index fund. You do not need to invest in every sector. This really made me think because one of the things I used to do was invest in businesses because I thought I needed to, to get diversification, even though I had no interest in those businesses. And one of those businesses was apparel or fashion. I had investments in companies like Under Armour, Lululemon, and also one in Hong Kong called Xstep. And the reason why I did this was I jumped on the athleisure trend and I thought I needed investments in this sector to be diversified. I haven't got such a big problem with the fashion industry, but also I think I agree with you that it's not an industry I understand particularly. I look at what I'm wearing now and I look at you on Zoom, right? Neither of us are particularly height of fashion kind of guys. Speak for yourself, Luke. <laughs> Albert is sporting a classic black t-shirt with matching headphones. That's about it. <laughs> Hope you got pants on. <laughs> I won't stand up, Luke. But you're right. Like You shouldn't be investing in industries you don't understand or are not passionate about. But you made pretty good money on some of those investments, right? Yeah. Yeah, when I look back on these two investments of Under Armour and Lululemon, yeah, I did make some money. But what happened was that I bought these quite early on, around 2009 and 2010, and they did quite well in the first few years, Under Armour especially, it went up about 15 times. But it's been on that gradual decline since 2015. And I think today it's about half where it was in 2015. And in that time, the S&P has pretty much doubled. And for Lululemon, for some reason, I can't remember why, I sold in 2017. And the stock has gone up five times since then. And I think about why I made these terrible trading decisions. And I think it's because I wasn't interested in the business and they didn't really follow it. It's not like Under Armour was being disrupted by its competitor. I guess in the fashion industry, it's all driven by brand perception. And so they might have the same business, but unless they're innovating within their brand, which we've self-admitted, we don't really understand, then their stock is going to suffer as a result. Lululemon have been a real winner of the pandemic. Everyone's switching from shirts and ties to athleisure gear. I often wonder why I didn't sell Under Armour and keep Lululemon. It's because I just didn't know what the trends were. Katrina highlighted a really interesting business model to me yesterday when we were chatting about this topic. She mentioned a company she'd seen on Instagram. I think they were called Fabletics, but basically it was a gym clothes subscription company. You sign up for, I think, £49 a month, and then they send you a box of gym clothes every month. How many gym clothes do you need? For real. It seems like such a bizarre model and such a large amount of money to spend every month on sports equipment. Maybe the clothes they sell are disposable. They deteriorate when exposed to sweat. <laughs> I've got a couple of favorite running shirts that have definitely seen better days. <laughs> 
<laughs> They're still my favorite things to wear when I run. Speaking of which, Luke, what has been your worst piece of clothing that you've ever owned? Oh man, uh, the Vincent Classics. I said, if I really, really think back in time, when I started going clubbing, when I was, I don't know, like a late teenager, my buddy Mike would wear this crushed velvet suit and I would wear this pair of leather trousers with a pretty awful t-shirt. And that was our Saturday night gear. So that was probably the peak of my bad fashion. Do you still have those leather trousers? Definitely not. They probably walked off by themselves into the sunset <laughs> after being worn on too many Saturday nights out. How about you, Alp? I don't recall any specifically terrible fashion of yours. Looking back, I think the worst piece of clothing I bought was a pair of shoes. It was light gray, brogue shoes made from suede. I do remember those. They had that little tassely bit. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It took me, wear, I had to wear them once before I realized I made a terrible mistake. <laughs> Actually related to this, I sold my shares in Stitch Fix recently because I realized that I wasn't particularly interested in their business and I didn't keep track of it in the same way I do for my other stocks. Yeah, me too. I was a shareholder and a consumer of their service for a good year or two. But after getting four or five fixes, I just figured the model wasn't really working for me. And I was a bit disappointed the way they handled some of my comments to customer services. So I closed my account and exited my position. I think we got lucky, Luke. I think in their last earnings call, they announced that they weren't doing so well and their guidance was mediocre and the stock just dropped about 20%. I guess we got lucky when we got in and got out with that one. Long-term investing isn't about luck. It's about having conviction and investing in companies you believe in. And I think I'm with you. Stitch Fix probably wasn't one of those companies when I really think back Similar to fashion, another industry that I thought I needed to invest in was fast food or restaurant chains. And I had investments in Starbucks, Chipotle and Panera Bread. I've closed my positions in Chipotle and Panera, but I've kept my Starbucks one. Not an industry I've really had any investments in. I remember considering Chipotle, but after heading out to Chicago and having a chance to try a burrito, I was a bit disappointed. I was a bit like, is that it? Like, what are investors on about? This is just a burrito. Were you put off Chipotle because you caught E. coli? Uh, I was not, but they certainly did have a lot of problems with their food supply for a couple of years. Actually, the reasons why I invested in Starbucks, Chipotle and Panera specifically for my restaurant stocks is a bit funny. I actually read an article about eight years ago that listed the top places for first dates in the US and the top three were Starbucks, Chipotle and Panera. Nice. <laughs> and uh, I had a quick look. What are the top three places for dates now in the US? And the dating app Clover did a survey in 2019 because that was the last time people could go out and meet people. Uh, and the top three places are in order. Starbucks is still number one, but then it's Chick-fil-A followed by In-N-Out Burger. You think like burgers and chicken would be pretty greasy, messy foods you probably wouldn't want to eat on a first date. I think this illustrates why I don't invest in restaurant chains anymore, because similar to fashion, food preferences go in and out of popularity and it helps to keep track of these trends. And even though I am interested in food, I don't really keep track of these food trends. In a particular area of the food industry that's quite interesting, I think are these delivery companies like DoorDash, Deliveroo, Uber Eats and Just Eat. And arguably some of the those companies have saved some businesses during the pandemic. Restaurants that were suffering because of lockdowns but couldn't mobilize their own delivery service. But at the same time, I'm a bit conflicted on this. Having looked into Uber Eats in particular, they can charge up to 30% of the bill to the restaurant, which they expect the restaurant to eat. It comes out of the restaurant's bottom line. That's pretty painful. And I guess the restaurants feel they have no choice in order to stay in business. Otherwise, consumers will just choose another restaurant that does deliver. Yeah, it's difficult. We've talked about ghost kitchens on a previous episode. 
And I definitely feel like that's probably going to be the future of delivery food. I'm not so sure about that, Luke. It seems that food delivery has become popularized by the pandemic and the lockdowns. But when these are over, don't you think people would want to go out and eat again? Oh, definitely. And if you're going out, you're going to want to go somewhere nice and you'll want to go to a brand you recognize. But if you're ordering in, I think the ghost kitchen business model can really work and can help a ghost restaurant refresh their brand on a regular basis at minimal costs. Yeah, you're probably right, Luke. I think food delivery is here to stay. And I think that's one of the reasons why we don't invest, right? It's because the restaurant business, there's too much competition. There's like low barriers of entry and it's a very low margin business. And it's very often a, a race to the bottom. Yeah, tough business. I've got a friend who quit his job and invested all of his savings into starting a restaurant. And yeah, that didn't work out so well for him. Many restaurants don't make it past that first year or two. I think a lot of people have this idea of opening their own restaurant and being able to create these intricate dishes. Once they do that, they realize that working in a commercial kitchen it's just hard work. Yeah, tough business. Let's pick up another sector that we're not keen on. Agents, the whole category of agents, estate agents, travel agents, recruitment agents. These middlemen industries are getting squeezed from both sides. Consumers are getting smarter and companies are using technology to go directly to the consumer. That's killing this layer in the middle that's just trying to cream a few percent of fees off of both ends. I guess things like Shopify make it very easy for businesses to sell online directly to their customers. Is that why you're so bullish on Shopify? It is as well, but I can just see the inefficiency of that agent business model. Anywhere you have to put humans in between the buyer and seller of services is just naturally going to be less efficient. Actually, one of our stocks in the model portfolio is a company called Fiverr, which connects companies with freelancers. Don't you regard them as a middleman as well? They are, but I think they're more like an Expedia than a Thomas Cook. They're putting technology in between and creating this marketplace for buyers and sellers. But it's not like you have to go into a Fiverr office and then discuss with a person or talk to them on the phone to say, I want to buy this kind of service. You just browse it in a catalog and you buy direct from the seller. I think you're right, Luke. I can't remember the last time I used a travel agent. And although we did use an estate agent to find our current apartment, my girlfriend did have the idea of going to a website such as 28HSC or 28house.com, which allows landlords to find tenants directly. Even in buying and selling houses, direct sales is becoming a thing. There are platforms starting to grow now where you can sell your house directly rather than having to use an estate agent. And the estate agent fees in Hong Kong are quite steep. I think when you rent a new place via an estate agent, the estate agent gets half a month's rent from both the landlord and the tenant. But to be fair, I think our estate agent earned her money. I think she showed us around 30 flats. You know, another industry that's really suffered this year particularly, but has been on a general downturn anyway, I think, is travel. Airlines got hit really hard by the global pandemic, but they were a difficult investment even before the pandemic. The hard businesses to run. Yeah, I think Warren Buffett has long warned about airlines being terrible investments. So it was quite a surprise when he actually bought them in 2016, but he was very quick to sell them last year when the pandemic hit. This industry is probably going to come back hard once the pandemic's truly over, and particularly once international travel reopens towards the end of this year, perhaps. But it's not an industry I want to invest in. And it also appears that everybody hates the airlines, especially the US ones. Why do you think that is? We've got our own bad travel stories, right? And I guess it's the bad experiences that stick with you. Well, have you been dragged off a plane? Oh, I've not been dragged off a plane, but I have had to assist the crew in uh, restraining a disorderly passenger. What were they doing? Uh, some very drunk Irish lady on the journey back from Belfast to London, I think. She was losing it in the seat in front of me. I think I ended up holding her down into a seat while the cabin crew got us strapped in tight. <laughs> okay. Oh, wait a minute, Luke. I think you mentioned one of your VC investments is in travel. 
What's going on there? Ah, uh, yeah, that, that was definitely a pre-pandemic venture capital investment and a pretty ill-advised one as it turned out. I'm not sure that I've got an excuse for that. I just took up a small VC stake in a little travel company that were selling their services to the Instagram generation. I don't know what I was thinking, to be honest. I don't understand millennials that well. I guess you must have been caught up in their marketing spiel. And saying that, I've also got a VC investment in the apparel sector, albeit I love this one. I've got a small venture capital stake in Blue Bella, the lingerie company. Wait a minute, Luke. So you have investments in travel and apparel. So we just scrapped this entire episode. <laughs> It's not it's not apparel, Albert. It's lingerie. <laughs> yes. Actually, my, my only travel-related stock is TripAdvisor. And that's been a terrible investment uh, since I bought it a few years ago. And I've been planning on selling this. But because these stocks have been hit so hard by the pandemic, I'm holding off selling them. I'm waiting for the travel industry to return to normal before offloading these TripAdvisor shares. I'll be interested to watch how you play that strategy. I think you're going to get your opportunity later this year. Let's see how you try and time your way out. I I'm aiming for around summer, around June and July. I think the US have said that everybody can get a vaccine on the 1st of May. It's possible that everybody who wants a vaccine will be vaccinated by the end of summer. They will start planning these trips at least internally before going internationally. You know, I used to be a TripAdvisor shareholder myself. I think I finally realized it was not the stock for me when I caught myself one day doing a whole load of trip research on TripAdvisor, but then going off to other websites to actually make the booking. And I was like, this is why these guys are struggling to make revenue because no one books stuff on their platform. I guess if you're so focused on booking your own trip and planning every minute aspect, you might as well get the maximum discount you can by going direct to hotel websites or trying to find other deals. Yeah, you're right, Luke. I don't even book via the price comparison sites. I use them to find the cheapest ticket and then I just book directly with the airline or the hotel. If you're into this stuff and if you're into planning it, you can look at every angle and buy the cheapest thing. And often that's not TripAdvisor. So that's why I decided to get out of that several years ago. Well, Albert, you know, we're coming to Towards the end of the episode and there's one industry we haven't touched on and it's definitely becoming a bit of a hype industry at the moment and Albert you did some research on this industry and you found it was one of the best performing sectors of the last century by a huge margin do you want to tell us all about it so one dollar invested in this industry in 1900 is now worth over six million dollars and that compares to 120 thousand dollars for the overall market so it's quite a big difference and that industry is tobacco stocks tobacco smoking it's a bad business but it's good money, it seems. Ironically, it's one of the best businesses to invest in. Uh, I read another stat that said $1 invested in Altria in 1968 is now worth over $6,600 versus $180 for the S&P. Yeah, that's a huge gain. 6,000 times your money is a monstrous gain. If I offered you that kind of return over a 50-year period, would you take it? Even if you knew the company you were investing in was killing millions of people? If you didn't tell me that, I probably would. But since I know it is killing people, I don't want to. Uh, I have a certain dislike of businesses that rely on their customers being addicted to their products or services, and especially ones that kill their customers. Yeah, you can't imagine it's good for business, right? If you're actively killing your customers, surely your market's dying. You would think that, but it appears that this is not the case for tobacco. And actually, I think a lot of investors are like me, where they stay away from tobacco stocks. And this is one of the reasons why they perform so well. Because these investors stay away, the valuations remain low and the dividend yields high. And these high dividends compound over time into high returns. Yeah, I guess these are not innovative industries that have to keep reinventing themselves 
products and releasing new products. You buy a cigarette today, I guess it's the same product as if you bought a cigarette 50 years ago. And exactly, and because these things are made in vast quantities, these economies of scale, it takes very little money to make a cigarette, but they can increase prices because consumers are addicted. And you know, an industry that's really becoming interesting to a lot of investors at the moment is cannabis. A lot of these tobacco companies are now switching into cannabis stocks or starting their own cannabis startups. And it seems to be a real growth area in the US, particularly as it's about to be decriminalized, perhaps federally. Yeah, I think the tobacco industry hasn't been doing so well since about 2015, but I think they're finding ways to grow again, such as cannabis and also vaping. Have you heard of Juul? Weren't they controversial because they were found to be marketing their products at kids? I think so, Luke, but I think they're still being sold. And they've said that they will stop doing that. Yeah, it's not good. And I'm sure these tobacco companies will find new ways to grow again as they discover these new products like cannabis and vaping. I wasn't aware just how much tobacco companies have gone up over the last 50, 100 years. But even with those wild returns, it's not a sector I want to be invested in personally. So that's a couple of businesses that Luke and I prefer not to invest in. So what are the key takeaways from this, Luke? I guess, as you said earlier on, while it's good to be diversified, you don't have to invest in every sector. Ideally, you want to invest in companies that you are interested in following and also sectors that align with your personal values. And I think the really important thing here is if you're really bought into the company you're invested in's mission, they're going to take setbacks. They're going to have execution troubles from time to time. They're going to run into problems along the way. But if you really truly believe in them, it's going to help you with your long-term investor mindset and stick with them through thick and thin. And I think that's been quite relevant over the last few weeks when the market has taken a downturn. A lot of businesses have been hit by the stock market sell-off. If I didn't believe so strongly in some of the companies I have in my portfolio, I'd definitely be thinking, should I be trimming this or should I be cutting this out? As I saw the stock prices go down, but I really believe in everything that's in my portfolio today. I've already weeded out all the rubbish. I'm happy when I see the stock prices go down because it lets me add, maybe get that next third or that full position at a cheaper price. We're going to wrap it up here, but I think there is an event you wanted to mention. There's an event called the FinTwit Summit that's happening this weekend on the 20th and 21st of March. And we follow quite a few people on Twitter in what they call the FinTwit community. And these are just people who tweet about investing and personal finance. And they're having an online summit this weekend. And I've signed up. I will attend. And they've got an interesting lineup of speakers. Their keynote speaker is a guy that we've mentioned several times, Morgan Housel. Peter Refringer from Software Stack Investing, Brian Feraldi. And Beth Kindig, who we mentioned earlier in this episode. Plus also that chap, Richard Chu, that you put us both onto about six months ago. And he has big positions in the healthcare industry, such as Teladoc Health. Well, I can't make the FinTwit Summit this weekend, but I'll be really interested in hearing your conclusions from it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. But you don't have to listen in real time. They'll provide recordings of all the material that you can listen to afterwards as well. Okay, well, let me check that out. Well, that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. If there's a future topic you'd like us to cover, you can message us on Twitter. I'm at Luke Telescope. And I'm at Albert Telescope. Or you can email us at feedback at telescopeinvesting.com. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find more content at our website telescopeinvesting.com, where you can leave us a comment or a review. And if this is your first time tuning in, perhaps consider subscribing to the website so that you're the first to hear about new articles and episodes as they drop. Thanks, Albert. Thanks, Luke. This podcast is for general information and is not a recommendation to act. Please seek independent investment advice before entering into any financial transaction. Entering into a transaction that involves securities or derivatives puts your capital at risk. Luke and Albert are not regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority or the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, and the companies mentioned in this podcast may be held personally by us. We can't be held responsible or liable for any action taken by a listener. And as ever, 
past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. Thanks and happy investing.